Good morning. Um, one of the things that I've always, um, if you will, envied about uh, those who grew up in Israel is that so much of our literature is in their first language. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a Shabbos table in Yerushalayim, and there was a young girl, maybe eight or nine years old, who was sharing a Dvar Torah for the Parsha. So she took out a Chumash Mekrois Kedalis, and she read, um, she read the Pasuk and the Ramban and the Ben Ezra. You know, just read it without translating, because she just read what it says, and everybody understands. And then she went on to share whatever her thought was. <coughs> so, you know, the, the, how the language is such a gift that people who grow up there have. So, uh, many years ago, I was about 15 years ago or so, probably the last time Purim fell on a Friday, I was in Yeshiva in Kfar Chabad, and I used to have a Mitzvahim route that I would go every Friday to put on fill-in with people uh, in Tel Aviv. And they had a whole area where we'd go from store to store. And so Purim was on Friday. And obviously, it's a, every Purim is a rush to try, you know, putting on fill-in takes two minutes. Learning the Megillah takes a lot longer, and it's Friday. You have to get back to Yeshiva for Shabbos. So I had, a, there was this area where there was, maybe, you know, five stores I used to go to that were all around, and, you know, each store is a few people, and it was around this sort of square or garden of sorts, and I, um, I got, um, so we arranged everybody would come out to the center of the square, and I would read the Megillah there for everyone together. So before I started, Arye, before I started, um, I apologized that I'm not in a position to read the Megillah in Ivrit with the Sephardi pronunciation, which is the way most Israelis are used to hearing it. And I said, I mean, halakhically, whichever pronunciation you use is perfectly valid, but you have to be consistent. So for me to be able to read the Megillah, certainly at high speed and perhaps even regular, um, but to be able to, sorry, to be able to read the Megillah in, in Sephardi pronunciation without making any mistakes was going to be quite the challenge. So I apologize. I'm not going to be able to do this. I said, I'm going to do it in Ashkenazi pronunciation, you know, bear with me. So I'm sitting there reading the Megillah and, uh, you know, how, you know, as fast as I possibly can and you know, articulating each word clearly. And about two thirds of the way through this 10 year old girl who's like sitting like this staring at me and she like pipes up, I don't understand anything you're saying. <laughs> Right? And it, it like struck how here's a 10 year old girl who's used to go, I mean, she's not religious, but in Israel, many people celebrate Purim. And she's used to going to Shulan or wherever she goes on Purim and hearing the story of Purim. And here she's coming and this guy is talking gibberish. Right? Um, if you ever try to hear somebody talking English with a Scottish accent, you know what I'm talking about. So, 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 so why can't we do the same? Can we read the Megillah in English? And before I start, I want to thank my friend, uh, Rabbi Shraga Hamnik. I often get ideas or sources from him, but in this case, um, practically, he actually gave a class on this topic last week. And I watched, the, I listened to his class, and then I discussed with him. We shared some ideas and sources, but uh, this class would not be here without him. So, uh, giving him the mention. Okay. So, the, the Mishnah says like this. This is the first Mishnah of the second chapter of Megillah. 
So somebody who reads the Megillah out of sequence does not fulfill his obligation. By the way, um, that is familiar to all of us from the famous Vart of the Baal Shem Tov, which we talk about every year, that when we read the story of Purim, we shouldn't just be reading it as history, but we have to find the practical relevance not to read it which literally translates as out of sequence, but also not to read it the Mafreya as being, actually literally the Mafreya means backward or in the past. So don't don't read don't read the Megillah in hindsight. Read it with foresight, so to speak. Okay. Um, if you read it by heart, or if he read it in Targum or in any other language, he has not fulfilled his obligation. So if I take the Megillah that's written by Hebrew written in Hebrew, and I either read it by heart, so I didn't have the scroll in front of me looking at the words, or I look at, I'm looking at the Hebrew words and I'm saying in another language. I'm saying and it was in the days of Achashverosh, right? So um, then I'm not fulfilling the obligation. However, we may read it for those who speak a foreign language in a foreign language. Um, I may read the Megillah to somebody in any other language, let's say English, if it's written, um, for, for, for those who speak a foreign language, if it's written in a foreign, in a foreign language, meaning if it's written in a foreign language. So I can't read from the Hebrew Megillah translating it into English, but if I have Megillah written in English, then I would be able to read it. One who speaks of but one who speaks a foreign language, sorry, Yatza, one who speaks a foreign language and heard it read in Hebrew, that was written in a Syrian script, we'll get into that, has fulfilled this obligation, right? So this last part of the Mishnah is the way we do the mitzvah in practice nowadays. That even somebody who speaks, let's say, exclusively a foreign language, or somebody who doesn't know any Hebrew, Nevertheless, if you sit in shul and you hear the entire Megillah read in Hebrew and don't understand a single word, you fulfill your obligation, right? So that's the way we do it today. We read it in Hebrew, and many people come to shul who don't know anything, who don't, who don't know what we're talking about, and they um, and they and they still do it, and they still fulfill the, the mitzvah. But the mission does say clearly that you can read it in a foreign language for people who don't understand that language. So wouldn't it be a much better idea for us to read the Megillah? In you know, in, in English, in French, in Spanish, whatever the local, whatever the local tongue is, would be much more meaningful um, experience for many people. Now the Gemara asks, why would it be? Um, why should that be the case? Why should I? Um, why should I be able? Why should somebody who doesn't understand Hebrew fulfill his obligation by hearing it in Hebrew? What point is there? So the Gemara says like this. No, let's go to the next piece. Gemara says, um, So there is a pasuk in the Megillah. The Chlal, chapter 9 of the Megillah. Um, okay, well, this is some part, this is chapter 8, sorry. Chapter 8 of the Megillah talks about um, the overturning of the decree. So uh, Mordechai is now sending out new, uh, the, the second updated decree um, to, to, to all the inhabitants of the, of the empire of Achashverosh. So it says, the Pasuk says, that he sent, um, so there's a number of words that which are not, certainly not sort of regular Hebrew words and have Persian origin or other origins. 
But one of the words is that he sent he sent out the word he sent out the these scrolls these letters. Um, the, 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 in those uh, couriers who riding on the horses, the achashronim, the sons of Ramochim. And the Gemara says we don't know what achashronim bnei haramochim means. Those are not uh, certainly not biblical Hebrew words. Actually, the word remach does appear in the Mishnahic Hebrew, which we'll see later. But we don't know what those words mean. But yet, we fulfill the mitzvah of hearing the Megillah, even though we don't know what those two words mean. So by the same token, one second, so what's the point of it? But, but nevertheless, there's a presume nisa. In other words, by everyone hearing the story together and hearing the reading of the Megillah, that um, emphasizes the, um, or promotes awareness of the miracle. So by the same token, even somebody who hears the Megillah and doesn't understand a single word, so also he's participating in the event and there could be meaning, and Rashi says he could ask other people to tell him what it means. But you know what? We see from here that hearing the Megillah even in Hebrew, even if you don't know what it means, um, you, still fulfill the, the, you still fulfill the obligation. Can you read along in English while hearing it? Very important question. No, you cannot read along in English while hearing it because you no. can't hear two things simultaneously. Not only that, you cannot even read along in Hebrew while you're listening to it unless you have your own kosher Megillah. If you, if you, if, if you have your own kosher Megillah and you are confident that you could say every word properly with the correct vowelization, etc., then you may, and perhaps even encouraged, to read it along with the Balkaira. But if you're reading from a printed version, um, then uh, then that wouldn't work. Uh, and certainly not in another language. By the way, it, um, I should point out that, you know, it says here that uh, you have, um, oh, it's okay. here we go. Um, <coughs> Yeah, look, at, look at, let's read these Pesukim inside. So you Jews write as you see fit in the name of the king. Um, and he says the scribes they wrote on the 23rd day of Sivan da -da -dum, and it says he wrote in the name of the king of Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's ring and he sent letter by the couriers on horseback and now this version which is I think I, think I took this from Chabad.org translated the riders of the king's steeds the camels bred by <laughs> dromedaries I don't even have any idea what that means um, but those are the words. These last few words, Hashan and Bnei Hamachim, is what the, the the words that the Gemara testifies that we don't know what they mean. We'll see soon that it's not so clear. Whatever. Now, um, I just want to point out one more thing that besides the, if you were to read it according to this section clause in the Mishnah, that you could read it in another language. So for, obviously, it would have to be written. But yeah, it would have to be written with with ink and a parchment. And uh, the Ritva says that it wouldn't have to have muk of gvil. In other words, that the requirement for each letter to be um, the, the exact precision of each letter wouldn't be as as uh, as it is in Hebrew. But there would still be the requirement to have it written on parchment, you know, and thing. However, there is a machlekas which we should probably talks about is which alphabet would we use? Would it be um, an English alphabet, or would it have to be written with the Hebrew alphabet? So, and it was, would be ayin nun dalit would be and, and then, you know, but still, even so, it would be a bit of a, you know, and, and the truth is, 
obviously the, the, the Arabic is a much closer related language to Hebrew than is English, but it, it, all, many of the Sfarim, all the Sfarim of the Jewish sages who wrote books in Arabic, um, the Rambam himself, the Rasag, dozens of sages who wrote books in Arabic, they all wrote them in Hebrew letters. It was very normal to write Arabic with Hebrew alphabet. Obviously, it would be much more confusing to write, you know, a a a a, um, a Latin-born language, you know, or German. Yeah, any any of to write uh, German would be easier, but to write English or French or Spanish in Hebrew letters would be difficult. But it's it's certainly doable. Okay, let's see the Rambam. Okay. The Rambam says, a person who reads the Megillah by heart does not fulfill his obligation. A person who speaks a language other than Hebrew and hears the Megillah read in Hebrew, written by the Holy Script, fulfills his obligation, or even though he doesn't understand what is being said. Similarly, if the Megillah was written in, a, in Greek, uh, okay, well, we'll skip the Greek because that's not relevant nowadays. Um, the Greek that the Mishnah talks about doesn't exist anymore. Okay. targum. Okay, now here's the thing. So the Rambam Paschal's like that was in the Mishnah. If it was written um, in Aramaic or in another language of Gentile origin, one who listens to this reading fulfills his obligation only when he understands that language or when the Megillah is written in that language. Okay, so the, 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 there's a big difference here that anybody fulfills the, the, the obligation by hearing the Megillah written in Hebrew, even if you don't understand the word. But for English, you only fulfill the obligation if you understand that language and that it's written in that language. Yeah. Um, now, there is, however, a Yerushalmi. Um, one second. The Yerushalmi says that Somebody who um, what happens if somebody knows Hebrew and let's say somebody who speaks Hebrew and English? Can he fulfill his obligation in English? Now, the simple reading of the mission doesn't suggest otherwise. If you understand English, you can fulfill the obligation in English. However, the Yerushalmi understands the Mishnah to be saying that you can only fulfill your obligation in English if you understand English exclusively. <clears throat> if you understand Hebrew and English, then you can't read the Megillah in English. Right? <laughs> that then brings to another problem, which is interesting, because the Yashami then says that if I understand Hebrew, not only can I not fulfill my obligation by hearing the Megillah in English, I can't read it for somebody else in English, because there is a principle, and it's a very interesting application of this principle. There is a principle that you can only discharge somebody else their obligation for a mitzvah if I am obligated in that mitzvah. So, for example, a woman would not be able to blow shofar for men, because men are obligated to hear shofar, and for women, hearing shofar is basically optional. So in order for me to be able to do something and discharge somebody else their obligation, I have to have not I have to have the equal degree of obligation that they have. So the Yushami says that because I understand Hebrew, so I don't have the same obligation that so-and-so has who only understands English, and therefore I would not be able to read it for them. Now it's it's like I said, it's an interesting application because. You would think that, what do you mean? We both have the same mitzvah to hear the Megillah, so why should I not be, why am I not incorporated? And we could find other precedent for that, where you, two people have a different um, scenario of 
fulfilling the same mitzvah and they can overlap. But yet, that's what the Yerushalmi says. Now, it's important to note that Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, we... We, we pass like the Babylonian Talmud. We don't, the Yerushalmi Talmud, certainly if there's a contradiction, and even not, we don't always incorporate the Yerushalmi Talmud in Tahalacha, but this is the discussion, going to, part of the discussion over here is going to be whether or not we pass like this Yerushalmi, because if we're going to pass like this Yerushalmi, then the, you, you could read the Megillah in English, but the Balkairo would have to be somebody who doesn't understand Hebrew. And if you take into account that it, the opinion that it has to be written in Hebrew alphabet, you're going to be quite hard to find somebody who could read English written in Hebrew alphabet but doesn't understand Hebrew. <laughs> um, but 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 the Mishnah actually in the end leans to be Mekel and says that it can be written even in the alphabet of whichever language it is. So you could, according to that, um, even according to Yishami, if you had a Megillah which was successfully um, uh, written in English. You could have a service of Megillah reading and you know by English for English, and nobody who understands Hebrew is welcome. Right, says Hebrew is the whole Megillah in Hebrew. You don't understand the entire Megillah, or or nothing. You don't understand the thing. Say, I'm not, I uh, the way I understand it from the discussion that ensues is that at least the words that you understand you would have to hear in Hebrew. So if you understand by ye, you're yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I'm not, how do you by ye? Yeah, most people understand some words. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I'm not sure. I'm not. Too, I'm not sure about that. Now the 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 Magen Mishnah. The Magen Mishnah says clearly that the Rambam disagrees with the. One second. The Ram, the, the Magen Mishnah says clearly. The Magen Mishnah is the first, I think, commentary of the Rambam. And he says that the Rambam agrees with the Rambam that disagrees with Yerushalmi because the Rambam says that. Um, in order to understand, yeah, look at this. One who listens to this reading of another language fulfills his obligation only when he understands that language. Right? He doesn't say that only if you don't understand Hebrew. So the Ramam does not seem to be going with the Yerushalmi. However, the Magamishna quotes that other important Rishonim, most notably, will be speaking about the Ramban, Nachmanides. The Ramban does hold Paskin like the Yerushalmi. We'll see in a minute. Now, I just want to point out before we go into the Ramban that the truth is, if you really want to be, um, you could read the Rambam otherwise, because the Hebrew, the way the Hebrew reads over here is which he under, which this version translates as, I mean, right here we're seeing the <laughs> we're seeing the challenge of translation over here, right? But he says only when you understand that language, but you could read it as if you understand that language exclusively, which would, if, if you were to read the Ramam like that, only somebody who understands that language exclusively, that would mean that if you understand Hebrew, you may not do the mitzvah in another language. So the Magad Mishnah says that the Rambam does not go with the Yerushalmi, but I'm just pointing out that those Rishonim who want to speak, who want to hold like the Yerushalmi, they could, at least B'doichak, pull the Rambam along with, it, with their opinion. Why else 
Either a makra is a lot that only somebody who understands that language, which is the way that they say, Allah, makra is a lot. Why do you have to add the word? Without the word bilvad, it's perfect. I think that, that that's not. You search the word bilvad in the Rambam, you'll see that's how the Rambam uses the word. Not exclusively. Yeah, it doesn't have to. No, no. And certainly, the, certainly the, the way the English over here have translated it is certainly the Pashat of Chat in the Rambam, and that's what the Makkad Mishnah says. The Makkad Mishnah says that's Chat in the Rambam. Um, Now here's an interesting thing. Now we have to remember the names over here. So we have the 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 the, the Ran. The Ran is Rabbeinu Nisim. I put his thing in a bit later, but um, Rabbeinu Nisim of Grona. He he's going to be a prominent player in this whole story. But so he wrote a commentary on the Rif, and he quotes the Ramban, which says that we have to um, follow the Yerushalmi, and. The Ram himself actually asks a number of questions on the Ramban. And he, he says that he doesn't, he, you know, he gets, in, it's, it's a very extensive, detailed discussion. But his bottom line is that the Ram, the Ram, the, the Ram rules. He says, I'm not convinced at all by the Ramban that we need to follow the Yerushalmi in this instance. But... I'm not convinced, but it couldn't hurt. So we should, we should behave in accordance with the Ramban, namely that you can only fulfill the obligation in another language if you do not understand Hebrew. If you do understand Hebrew, you cannot understand, you write in another language. And by the same token, if you don't understand Hebrew, you cannot read it for somebody else in another language. Now here we come to the Shuva of the Rivash. So the Rivash, Okay, Rivash is a Yitzchak ben Sheshes, um, who was, here you go, this is an important part, he was, a, he was a student of the Ran, this same Ran, who has just told us that even though he's not convinced by the Ramban, but we ought to do, do, do um, be machmir like the Ramban anyway. So he had a student called the Rivash. The Rivash became, um, for a number of years, he became the Rav in a city called Saragossa. Um, Saragossa is a city in Spain. Um, in, the, in, the, in the language of the Roshanim, they call it Sarkosta. And in the, the response of the Rivash in Simon Shippeches, chapter 308, uh, response number 388, he writes like this. This is the letter which I sent to my teacher, the Ran, as soon as I came to Sarkosta. Um, concerning reading the Megillah, written in Laz, Laz means the foreign language, which in his case was whatever the, the precursor to Spanish, yeah, in Spanish. And um, he writes, he starts off with a, with a long introduction of his words of affection and love to the Ran. And then he says that, I see that there's many customs in this community of Saragossa, which they're always being lenient. And that's the style of here. They're always, whatever there's two opinion, they always they always have their leniencies. Now, some of the things that they're lenient about, he says, they have on who to rely on. And he quotes the famous Machlokes about Hatzmona, that they pass like a Haigon, which is a lenient opinion. But some of the things that they're lenient about, I don't see any basis for their lenient 
way of doing things. And so now, before Purim, they told me that it's already 30 years that the custom here in Saragossa is that they read the Megillah for the women in Laz, in, in, in Spanish, um, and written in Spanish. And I told them that this is not okay. Why is it not okay? Because like we just saw from the Ramban and the Yerushalmi, that it's not okay to, to for somebody who does understand Hebrew, and in this case, the Balkaire understands Hebrew. So even if all the women in, in, in Saragossa only know Spanish, but the Balkaire knows Hebrew, so that's not good enough. How could he you do your mitzvah for you in Spanish? And they've been doing this for 30 years. And he says, Rabbi Anoidul da Talusa, Rabbi Anoidul da Talusa is the Magad Mishnah, who's only known to us by his Spanish name. Interesting. Um, and he says, even the, the Magad Mishnah, who, like we said before, he attributes the Rambam to be, he sends the Rambam to be disagreeing with the Yerushalmi, but he himself, quoting the Ramban and the Rashba and the Yerushalmi, the Magad Mishnah himself says that we should be machmi like the Yerushalmi. Then he says that there is my colleague over here, Hachacham Anichbad, Rabbi Yosef ibn David. Now, Rabbi Yosef ibn David was um, also a Talmud of the Ran, so they were they were somewhat uh, they were contemporaries. Of both came from the school of the Ran, of the, sorry of the Ran, the Rivash and his contemporary, and they were colleagues. And we find many many things that they did. To, it's interesting. So the, this Rabbi Yosef and the Rivash. They had many differences, very strong differences, to the extent that it seems that at the end of the day, that's why the Rivash left Saragossa, because it was just too much to, to kept them being too much discord. But nevertheless, they cooperated very nicely together. We find historical records of numerous projects that they supported each other on and worked together with. So a very interesting relationship. So he says that this colleague of mine, who's also your student, Rabbi Yosef Ibn David, he doesn't, yeah, he supports them in all of their lenient customs, whether it's lahachnifam, just to flatter them so that he finds favor in their eyes, or whether it's just to embarrass me, or whether he just likes to get his own cover, his own glory, or maybe because he's just too weak to do anything about it, or maybe all of these four reasons are true. I don't know why, but for some reason, this Rabbi Yosef Ibn David is supportive of them. And there's another elderly rabbi over here called uh, Don Ezra, who um, also tells them not to change. They've been doing this for so many years. And he said like this, <laughs> this, this is a funny one. The Ramban, we said already before, the Ramban says not to do it because the Ramban says you have to do with the Yerushalmi. But in the Ramban's discussion, I'm not doing it. He says, many people do this, but it's a mistake and I shouldn't be doing it because of the Yerushalmi. So the people of Saragossa says to the, say to the Rivash, you see the Ramban already testifies that many people are doing this. Either Ramban, the Ramban himself says that they shouldn't be doing it because of a mistake. Okay, whatever. That, other, we say that many people have been doing this and we should, we should keep the custom, right? So the people of Saragossa in general have a tendency to leniency and specifically here they have this custom which um, we, can, we, can, uh, we can verify uh, and we, we, we have testimony that this has been the case for so many years. And therefore, you know, we have precedent. Now, it's, it's, what, one of the things that's really interesting is that he starts off this struggle by saying that some of the lenient customs have no basis. He says some of the lenient customs have basis, like the relying on a high going about Okay, But some of them have no basis, for example, reading the Megillah in Spanish. 
What do you mean it has no basis? Now, you could say that it's wrong for you to rely on the lenient opinion and should, we should be um, stringent like the opinion of the Ramban, but it's strange that he says there's no basis. Of course there's basis. Those who argue on the Ramban, I mean, the, the simple reading of the Ramban, right? But the Rivash seems to be convinced that there is no legitimate, um, the Rivash seems to be convinced that there is no legitimate um, There is no legitimate basis for to, be, to, to, to have somebody who does understand Hebrew read the Megillah in Spanish. And then he says that um, even if you are right, that it's okay for someone who understands Hebrew to read the Megillah in Spanish, but what are you going to do about the accuracy of your translation? And he says, for example, you translate these words of Ahashtron in Bnei Haramochim as, does anybody here speak Spanish? Poquito. Okay, so you'll be able to read these words for me as they are pronounced in Spanish. Um, okay, the Spanish also has developed over the years, but I have here the way it's, um, here we go, let's move my screen out of the way. He says that they translate, um, well, one second, this. in their Megillah that they read for the women in Spanish, they have translated the words, one second, they have translated the words of Ahashrod in Bnei and this is how he writes it in Hebrew, Los Potros Pigush de los Iguas, which right, in, in, in modern day Spanish, this is what it is. Los Potros, read this. Potros, what? Are you saying Quatros? No, it's Potros. Potros? Los Potros. Don't know that one. No, I'm not saying what it means. Tell me how you pronounce it. How oh. do you? Potros. Yeah, go and read this sentence. Los potros. Sí. And what's this word? How do you read this word in Spanish? Again? Hijos. Hijos. Hijos de los yeguas. Okay, los, pot los potros, hijos de los yeguas, which means, which means the fowls, the sons of the mares. Now, what's a fowl, what's a mare? So a fowl is a young horse. So the word potros, this is going to be important, the word potros means a young horse. And these horses are the sons of the mare, which means a mature female horse. So they've translated as a hashran in Bnei Haramachim to mean the young horses that, that, that Mordechai was sending um, his courier services and they were riding young horses, the sons of female horses. Well, we have a strange transla translation because obviously young horses are sons of female horses, but that's their translation. Mm -hmm. Says the Rivash, I don't understand. The Gemara says that we don't know what Achashtron and Bnei Haramachi means. So how could you claim, so true the Mishnah says that you could read the Megillah in a foreign language, and even if we're going to accept your thing that you can read it in a foreign language, even if you understand Hebrew. But it's all theoretical, because in practice we can't translate the words. The Gemara testifies that we don't know what that words mean. Who went up on high and told you that this is what those words mean? And if you don't have those words right, then... Um, then, then you know, then the whole thing is is, is lost. Can you try to those? Yeah. Okay. But this is what this is the truva of the rivash. This is the letter that the rivash sends to the realm. Now, that was rivash chapter letter number three eighty eight. Two chapters later, in three ninety, the rivash records the letter that he got back from the realm. Um. And 
Liran absolutely gives his full support for the Rivash in objecting to the the custom. Now, interesting, before he gets into the details of the Megillah, he gives him a general hashkafa in life. And if you recall, in the letter of the Rivash to the the Liran, he said to him that over here in Saragossa, in Saragossa, they're always lenient about everything, right? And they have this Rabbi Yosef Ibn David who's always supportive of their lenient things. Um, so then he says, I want to tell you that even when it comes to worldly matters, anybody who, any smart person called Maskir, you always take the path of least risk. And you make sure to avoid risky situations, even if it's a very, even if it's a very um, small chance, you know, what are the chances that you're going to get hurt if you don't wear a seatbelt? But you wear a seatbelt if your wife's in the car. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, certainly, <coughs> listen to this, Allah has come and come, how much more so that we should do so with the ways of Torah and Mitzvahs, which are which are sort of so um, central to the world. And how can we, and how can we abandon the way which our ancestors treaded in and put ourselves into a very narrow path um, without any desperate need. If there's a desperate need to be lenient and to do things differently than our ancestors did, then fine. But Savela, if it would be really necessary for them to read the Megillah in Spanish, no, I'll let them get away with it. But what's so difficult for them to just do the way we've always been doing it? For already centuries, we have the history of reading the Megillah in Hebrew for everyone, even for those who don't understand Hebrew. So why are we trying to change it? To abandon the way which is certainly okay and to adopt a way which has doubt, you wouldn't do that in any other of your in any of your personal or worldly affairs. So why should you do that in the way of mitzvahs? And therefore, I don't, um, agree with the people who um, are allowing to read the Megillah in Spanish because of this translation of And he says, I tried very hard to establish, to try and justify the Minhag, and I can't do it. Now, here's the important thing. Before this, Again, there's, there's, two, there's two primary issues that the Rivash raises over here. One is, is it legitimate for a... Uh, for somebody who does understand Hebrew to read the Megillah in another language. And the other is, do we have an accurate translation of Ahashtran and Haramach? Now, the Ran, if you, rec- if you recall, in his commentary to the Rif, he said clearly that even though he's not so convinced by the arguments of the Ramban, but we should be Mahmer. And the same too in this Chuva, he's very, like he goes through all the details of different Gemaras which prove one way or the other. And he, he's not convinced by the Ramban's argument, but he still maintains that the Ramban says we should be machmi, we should go with the Yerushalmi that says that only if you don't understand Hebrew can you read it in another language, and therefore that's what we ought to do. So it's like, if you read between the lines, it's like he's supporting the Rivash and saying you have to be machmir, but he, he's not really, he's like, yeah, we ought to be machmir like the Ramban, but he's not really convinced of the Ramban's arguments as they sort of the various proofs from the sugya point to. And then he gets onto this translation of Achashon ibn Aramachim. And he says, well, you know, the Gemara says we don't know what Achashon ibn Aramachim means, but it could be that the Gemara doesn't mean to say that nobody knows what it means, right? It could mean the Gemara means to say that these are difficult words that most people don't know. It doesn't mean that nobody knows what it means. 
Um, and it's possible to say that we do have tradition as to what these words actually mean. So maybe the, this um, translation that the people of Saragossa are, are using, los potros hijos de los yaguas, this word, the, the foul, what? The fowls, the sons of the mares, maybe that is an accurate translation. Now he says, I looked at the commentaries of this pasuk, and he, he he doesn't actually name the Ibn Ezra, but he says, this is the Rans, uh, they go a little bit of the, sometimes you actually see the Ramban being called Ranbar, right? Rebnissen ben Ruvain. We call him usually just the Ran, or sometimes it's referred to as the Ran of Krona. Okay, so he says that the commentaries say, and he anonymously quotes the Ibn Ezra, that Achashtranim means Perodim. Perodim means um, a parrot is a mule. And Ramachim means female horses. And so it is in Arabic, which um, the etymology of Arab, Arabic, the structure of Arabic is very similar to that of Hebrew. And he says, a mule, now a mule, a mule means a, 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 um, a, a, an offspring of a camel and a horse, sorry, a donkey and a horse. Donkey and a horse. Now it could be either way. You could have the father being a donkey. You could have the mother being a donkey. But he says that the the, the mares, the mules, that have the mother being a horse versus the father being a horse are stronger, right? And it's interesting that just on my first Google, the, the definition of mule, it says the sterile offspring of a female horse and a male donkey valued as an animal work having strong muscles, right? So somehow the fact of the mother being a uh, a, a horse. Uh, makes the, the animal stronger. Now, having strong horses was very important over here, as we'll see soon. The idea was to get these uh, letters across the entire empire of Persia um, at, at, at top speed. So they were looking for the fastest animal that the writer could sit on carrying copies of these letters. Right. So this interpretation of the Benazir that we're talking here about um, mules, which are the sons of mares, and also now it's suddenly, like, when you say, if, if, if Achishtronim means um, fat, what did we say it was, fowls, yeah, young, young horses, then young horses, sons of female horses, that's a very strange um, phrase, but if it means mules, the sons of mares, now that makes a lot more sense, so, um, he says, the Ram says, I was still trying to justify the Saragossan custom, and I asked people who are, who are experts in this language, is it possible for that word potros to mean mules? And they said, no, potros means exclusively young horses. And so basically, um, So that's it. So basically, uh, now again, so the run is coming out in support of the of, of the Rivash, but there's a couple of pro not problems. But again, he's not convinced of the argument that somebody who understands Hebrew can't read it in Spanish. He just says it's better to do that. <coughs> and even here, he says, okay, well, that translation is wrong. Okay, so then, so then, just change the translation instead of saying fowls the sons of of mares, say mules the sons of mares, and you're good to go. The Ram doesn't say that. The Ram just says that because that translation is wrong, so therefore you can't do it. Now, 
what else? The truth is like this. So you have it. Rashi actually says, you saw before from the Chabad Arov, they translated, um, I didn't understand all the words they used, but they translated Achashonim as camels, which is what Rashi says. In Rashi's commentary to Megillus Esther, he says that Achashonim means camels. Um, there's also other versions of translations we find. We find some commentaries saying that Achashonim means um, uh, that the riders, the riders of the no, he sent them sent them couriers on horseback. the riders of the king. So is another thing, or is it just a synonym for the words we've just said? So some argue that Achashtonim is. Uh, just a synonym, and it's a Persian word that means royal agent. So it's not a camel or a horse or a mare or a fowl, it's just a royal agent. Um, there's also actually a Mishnah. We do find, I thought I put this down in my source sheet here. We do find the word Rechesh in the Mishnah. One second. There is a Mishnah where we find Rechesh in the context of a Mishnah in Kilayim where it's clear that um, Rechesh means a female horse. So, uh, Remech, Remech means a female horse. Um, now, there is an article that I have here, um, an academic article by all about the, the sort of the history from various different Bibles, ancient translations of the Bibles, to what these words mean. And actually, I mean, he goes through, um, he goes through where he says, you do find indeed Bibles that have the translation of the Ramban. So he says, he's, there's an old ancient Bible that says, Los Mulos de las Yeguas, de las Yeguas, right? The mules, the sons of the, of the thing. So this translation that the Ramban is quoting that we see also here, is uh, he seems to be quoting the Ben Ezra. Um, indeed, there are very ancient Bibles translated into Spanish that have this translation. Um, then he says, you see, there's another Bible that translates it as, no, this is, uh, right. He translates, he brings another ancient Bible that just has this word in Spanish, which means horsemen, but, oops, but he, and he doesn't, so he skips it. I mean, this is part of the trouble of translation when you're talking about synonyms. If you think, if you hold that Rechesh, is a synonym of Rechesh, so then he just skips those words. So he just has the horseman, Rechesh, translated as horseman, and then he skips the next few words. So then he obviously holds that they are just synonyms. Um, but it's interesting that he in this article he does find a lot of uh precedent very ancient precedent from again you know there's going to various different very ancient manuscripts um where the what was in support of the translation to which the Ravash and the ran were opposed that it in los potros right that it means the the fowls the sons of the fowls the sons of mares so again, so even though it's difficult to understand, like what, why are you telling us that these were young horses, the sons of female horses, that thing. But so even though logically it's difficult to understand, but nevertheless, 
um, there is tremendous um, sort of historical record to that. And then in the end, he actually says something funny that he found um, a translation in one of the manuscripts which translated it as elephants, um, which would be a very strange translation also in the context because if you're trying to get things very fast across the, the, the thing, then elephants is not really the way to go. But he says that he thinks that it's a mistake that it said al-kil, which means a, um, which is one of the trans, which is, which means the, I forget if al-kil is the mule or the potra, whatever, one of those words, but the kof of kil, we have the letter kof, is very similar to a pay, which is al-pil, and pil, even in modern Hebrew, is an elephant, it's probably related actually to the English word elephant, you have those things, the al and the pay in there, so he says that was just a, a sort of typo that developed into it, meaning elephants. But one of the very interesting sources that he quotes is the Manus Halevi. The Manus Halevi is a commentary on the Megillus Esther from Reb Shleim Al-Kavats. Reb Shleim Al-Kavats is most famous to us as being the author of Mechadoidi, that we sing on Friday night. And he has the Manus Halevi, um, is the name of his commentary on the Megillus Esther. And his Manus Halevi, he quotes, it, it's not, it's, it's not, he's quoting there from somebody by the name of Yehuda Ibn Shushan, I'm not sure who that is. And he says, Hamafarshim Hiskimu, the commentaries have agreed, Shem Hasusim, that it means young horses, the sons of female horses, which in our language is called Potros, the sons of Yeguas, right? So that, again, the Manus Alevi is saying that all the commentaries agree to the translation of Saragossa, which the Ran and the Rivash were opposed to, that it means potros, not that it means that it means uh, fowls, not that it means mules. Now, the truth is that Lechaira, if that's the issue, it's a very easy issue to overcome. And now we get to sort of the um, classic halachic texts, right? So the Beis Yosef, who's the author of the Shulchan Aruch, um, and before he gets to his Shulchan Aruch, he, in his commentary to the Torah, which is more of sort of an overview of the halacha before it's getting into very concise code, um, he, 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 he quotes this whole issue with the correct, what's the correct translation. And he says, even if we knew the translation, we have to be, we, we ought to be machmir like the Ramban, that somebody who understands Hebrew can't read it in another language. Um, but he says, um, I don't understand, even if we can't determine the translation of, um, you know, the Patra um, well, I don't understand. What's the problem? Why don't you just read the whole Megillah in Laz, in Spanish, I mean, whatever the local tongue is, right? And when you get to those words, you say them in Hebrew. You don't, you don't know what they mean in Spanish? We know that if you don't understand Hebrew, you can fulfill. So those words... Have them written in the your scroll in, in Hebrew, and read them in Hebrew. What's the problem? And we don't find anywhere that you can't read the Megillah in two languages. So what's the problem? And either you write them in Hebrew, or you write them in Spanish, or you read them, because if you read, we said in the beginning, if you read the Megillah by heart, it's no good, but it, it's not every word. If you read a few words out about you it's, it's okay. So he sort of doesn't understand the problem, but you know, but then we have the problem with the Ramban that if somebody does understand Hebrew, he leaves it at that. Now, what does he say in Shulchan Aruch? In Shulchan Aruch, which is the sort of the code where he tells you what you have to do, he says, um, he says, um, <coughs> 
somebody who understands the foreign language and also understands Hebrew does not fulfill his obligation last. So, whereas until now we've been saying that we it's better to we ought to be machmalak than banish, the Chonarchi sort of says it, says it um, sort of authoritatively. You're not yet if you do it in another language. Then he says, oh, there's another opinion that you are yet. So, They still don't know what the word means in Hebrew. Yeah, but but one second. So there's two. So, so one second, one second. And then he says, We ought to. We have to reprimand. We have to object. Protest. We have to protest those who read the Megillah for the women in the in the local tongue, even if it's written in the local tongue. Now, why do we ought to protest? So you have two classical commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, the Taz and the Magen Abraham. The Taz says that the reason we ought to protest is, and he quotes that line from the Ran. That says, why should you abandon the safe way of our ancestors and go into something which is not anything? And the Mogan of Ram says, the reason why you have to protest is because we don't know the translation of I just read it in Hebrew, says the Mogan of Ram. No, you're not Yotz if you read it in two languages. How do you know you're not Yotz if you read it in two languages? Because otherwise, the Ram should have said, just read it in Hebrew. It's almost circular, right? Just it, the, the Magen of Ram is basically deducing from the fact that all these people who discussed it never suggested to read it in two languages, right, until the Beis Yosef, who sort of didn't really get into it. He, okay, so it must be that it's not good enough to read it in two languages. So now we're stuck. We don't know the accurate translation of Achashon Ben Aramachim, and we can't read it in two languages. So... So what's the problem? So, so this, that's why you can't do it. You can't do it. Now, the truth is, one second. So, what, what, sorry, what did you just ask, Tom? Well, my thing is, is that no one who reads the Megillah knows what it completely means. All right, but, but, right, but, but like the Gemara, that's the, that's the Gemara said. The Gemara says that if you're in Hebrew, even if you don't understand it, right. you go to the mitzvah. So if I hear the Megillah in Hebrew and I have no idea what Rachash means, or for that matter, I have no idea what any of it means, I'm going to the mitzvah. But if, I if I'm in a foreign language, then I must understand that language, and according to the Rabbana, I must understand that language exclusively and not understand Hebrew, right? right. So if I don't know what Achashtran Ibn Aramachim means, if I read it in Hebrew, it's fine. I don't know what it means, but it's fine. But here, we, we're not sure if it means the mules or if it means the fowls. Right. So, so what are you going to do? You can't read it in two languages, apparently. We don't know why, but apparently you can't read it in two languages. And we don't know what the right translation is, so you're stuck. So I, I, yeah, I'm just thinking that no one knows. Again, yeah, it's true that no one knows, but even okay. if no one knows, if you hear it in Hebrew, it's fine. Right. Now, however, so even though the Mogan of Ram sort of says this blanket statement that it's forbidden to read it in two languages, so garnish as push it, as they say. It's not so simple. The Prichadish the says no. Like, why, why can't you do it in two languages? No reason why not to. Um, The Pimukadim says, well, you're not allowed to do it in two languages. Now, all of this is very strange because, first of all, you know, especially nowadays where to hear the Megillah for 45 minutes, especially for people who didn't grow up from, who didn't grow up doing it, and for people who, who it's a complete, you know. So what are the, the most you can expect from them is to sit and simultaneously read it, not verbalizing the words, but read it with their eyes in English, which also, so you're not really paying attention. You're reading a book and there's background noise. Right. So that doesn't count as 
So, so wouldn't it be so much better if we just read, you know, read the Megillah in English? Not only that, the 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 the, the, the and, and the, the Prichadim are all busy with can you read the Megillah in two languages? I have a much better idea. Read it all in one language and say all the possible translations. We already said that if you say a few words, Shalom if you say a few words not out of the text, of, you know, by heart, it's okay. You're not allowed to read the whole thing in heart, but a few words here and there are fine. And we actually do that because there are certain words in the Megillah which we, which there's different traditions as to what the correct word is, and certainly a Chabad custom is that we do both. For example, the Ishloi Omad Bifnehem, which is what it says in the Megillah, nobody stood in their way. So is it nobody stood Bifnehem or nobody stood Lifnehem? So in the actual Megillah, obviously it only says one of those two ways, but in practice we read both. And if the correct one is Lifnehem, then we read that word by heart. Okay. Right, and similarly, there's another one, laharegula abit velaharegula abit. Right, so okay, so you don't know if it means the mules, or if it means sorry, you don't know if it means, um, yeah, you don't know if it, if, if achastronim means mules, or if it means royal agents, or if it means um, is it full? Yeah, fine. So just say all of them. It'll still be much more meaningful to people than reading it in Hebrew. You don't want to mix languages. You want to have it all in English. Okay, have it all in English and say all the possible variations of what it might mean. Might be sound a bit repetitive, but okay. Anyway, now, the Morgan of Rome also quotes the Shuvah of the Ranach, which is Rabbi Yob and Chaim, who lived, do I put here, I think, in the footnote. Yeah, he was born in uh, Andrianople, which at the time was Turkey, in the year 1530. So he's, uh, the Rivash was in the, the earlier discussion of the Rivash in Iran is uh, earlier. They lived, what was the Rivash in Iran lived? Yeah, it's on the screen before, I didn't even pay attention. Um, Rivash was in the 14th century, and this is already a little bit later. Um, <coughs> Oh, here we go. I had that mentioned to you before. The, the Mishnah in Kilaim. It's a Mishnah in Kilaim, chapter 8, Mishnah 5, where it says, where Ramach clearly means um, the female's horse. Okay, anyway. um, so, the, so basically, the Ranach um, records this very strange custom. Now, so what day is Purim? Purim is on the 14th, and in the, those cities that had a wall at the time of Yeshua Benun, it's on the 15th. So there are a number of cities where it's a doubt. We don't know whether or not they had a wall, and so they do two days. So he says there's a certain uh, a certain uh, city. Does he say which city it was? Um, seems like he's talking in Turkey. It's interesting because in Turkey, I know for, certainly in Istanbul today, the custom is they do two days of Purim because that was always the Minag, even though the... It, the Minag started from a place of uh, ignorance and history, meaning in those days they saw the city has a wall. So maybe this wall is around for thousands of years, we don't know. But by now we know with fairly with certainty that Istanbul did not have a wall around it in the time of Yeshua bin Nun. But nevertheless, because the custom always was that in Istanbul they do two days Purim, so they still do it today. But basically the Minag was that on the second day Purim, instead of reading the Megillah, they would read they would read some story that they had where they had the whole story of the Megillah, including the Midrashim and all the different uh, things uh, in Spanish or, or 
whatever, in not Spanish, in whatever the language was over there. And um, how did this come to be? Anyway, basically, it turns out that it was, they, they used to do this when it fell on Shabbos, like it does this year. So anyway, you don't read the Megillah, so they did that instead. And then people started thinking that you have to do, that reading the story is more important than reading the Megillah. Whatever, just an interesting thing that Morgan Avram also quotes. The bottom line is, the bottom line is like this, that I think that there's, I think that there's two reasons why in practice, this never sort of kicked off. Number one is that it, it, it is, I, I don't know that it's insurmountable, but it is difficult to get an accurate translation of the Megillah written in English that is gonna sort of suffice all opinions and, and, and uh, you know, it, it's gonna be, it, it, that's gonna be tough. But the other thing is that as, as, as the last couple of centuries have sort of given birth to all sorts of offshoots of Judaism, um, what, what, so Torah true Judaism, which became known as orthodoxy, has become very suspicious and cautious about anything that could be seen that way. And there's actually a tshuva, a letter from Rabbi Kiveger, where he goes, he says, people want to daven in English, oh, not in English, he's talking about German, yeah? But uh, people want to daven in thing, and he says, it's impossible, how could you, translation, and he goes on for a long time to speak about the challenge of translation and how you're changing around, he says, first of all, you're changing around the order of words. Um, he says, look, take this sentence, translate it into German, and then take that German translation and translate it back into Hebrew, you're going to come up with something else. And he says, you have, for example, one of the examples he gives is Tishmu, which is a double expression in Hebrew, which has no translation into English. So he doesn't like this whole thing of translating anything into English. And he, he really, he's very, now the, the truth is that even, even nowadays, well, for, so the Altarebbe Paschal is clearly that you can't have it in English, and certainly if you don't understand Hebrew, but that's another thing, that even nowadays, and we do um, support and even encourage people who don't understand Hebrew to dive in English, but we, you'll never find um, the minion in English in a, from, right? The Chazan is always going to be reading in Hebrew, right? Now, technically, sort of, uh, technically speaking, there's no reason why not. Right? If we say that this English translation is valid, then you fulfill your obligation of dominating by saying it in English. So then why couldn't, shouldn't the whole, why shouldn't everybody say it in English? But we don't. And there seems to be a pushback against, you know, uh, any, you know, the, the, the very early stages of the reform movement. There's actually a letter which I once saw, I didn't see it recently, so I hope I'm quoting it accurately. Sorry, where somebody, where somebody asked the Rebbe about translating, about reading the Ksuba in English under the Chuppah. And I'm a little surprised you didn't stop class to do this. Me too. Um, and and uh, where was I? Um, Yeah, so somebody asked the Rebbe about reading the Ksuba in English under the Chuppah, so like, people should understand what it's about. It's nice. And until today, and you'll see, like in the Chabad house, you know, a Chuppah where there's crowds who are not sort of all familiar, you'll have like an MC who tells you what's going on, right? And the Rebbe said, like, in theory, it's a good idea, but we have to be very careful about changing anything about the 
rituals that are done under the chuppah because we need to keep that pristine. And there's actually a sugar from a rav, from a contemporary rav, who says that, you know, the reason we can't do it in English is because that's going to basically feed into the form. Now, it, it seems like a, a combination of those two factors, the, the, the difficulty in execution of getting an accurate translation in English, as well as our, our um, general uh, sort of caution when it comes to the liturgy or any rituals of changing anything is the reason we don't do it. Now, and before we finish, I just want to share with you, I want to read this together with you. So this, um, there's a man by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Landi who wrote a very interesting book on the book of Yermia, actually, first. So um, he has a lot of stuff in Hebrew, but in English, he has two books. We have them both in the library. One is archeological stuff that has to do with the book of Yermia, a fascinating, fascinating book. And then he has one on the, on the Persian empire as well, which is a very interesting book. I personally found the one on Yermia much more interesting, but he describes what these, whatever they are, whether they're mares or mule, or whatever it is, he describes what it was all about. The, the, the Megillah mentions, and the king's new decree was sent out by swift riders. The Persians had developed a system that enabled them to transport the king's decrees in record time. The system included a highly developed network of roads, as well as skilled riders who could ride swift horses. One famous road was called the Royal Road and connected the capital city of Shushan with the city of Sardis in ancient Lydia, modern-day Turkey, which was at the edge of the empire. Um, I guess Herodotus, who's I guess the historian, which he's referring to, describes the course of this road in detail and mentions how much time it would take for an average person to travel each segment of the road. In total, it should have taken 90 days to travel from Shushan to Sardis. However, the high-speed riders were able to cover this distance in record time. Herodotus' praise for this system actually served as inspiration for the United States Postal Service many years later. He writes, there's nothing in the world which travels faster than these Persian couriers. It is said that men and horses are stationed along the road equal in number to the number of the days the journey takes a man and a horse each day. So they would sort of ride at top speed. And once the horse was wearing out, there was already another horse waiting at that stage to take over. So they were able to go at record speed for the entire way. Then he goes on to discuss, um, you know, different records of different stamps of the, you know, food rations and stuff that were taken along this highway. And then also he has here a picture. This is existing remains of the Royal Road, which I guess we would call today the highway, which connected Shushan to Sardisa, which was used by the King's Swift Riders. So this is an actual picture of the road on which the, the Megillah talks about these riders taking the letters of Mordechai to all the edges of the empire. This is one of the highways that those horses um, took. And uh, with that, we bring this to a close. Yeah, it's the Pony Express. The Pony Express. That's How do I stop the recording? Stop recording.